Okay, so we're in week five of our Pierce to Power series. We're um, talking about, uh, we asked this really simple question. So, you know, Jesus died and rose again. And then we just asked this simple question. Why did Jesus wait 40 days before he went back to heaven? And then why did he ask his disciples to wait 10 more days beyond those 40 days to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Why didn't he just do all that at one time and go back? And what we have said is that, that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, were pierced, right? During the whole crucifixion, and then three days later he rose. We know that like the resurrection changed everything, but it didn't change them right away, right? I'm not going to go back and re-preach the whole thing. You can listen to them online. But just to recap, we know that for the entire first week after the resurrection, even after Jesus appeared to the disciples, they still stayed locked up in a house, right? So if you're, if you're here, you've been following Jesus your whole life, and sometimes you doubt, welcome to the club, right? Like, that's normal. And even the men and the women who saw Jesus risen with their physical eyes were still locked up a week later. They were pierced. They were hurt. They were getting, they needed healing. And so he wasn't going to pour out the power of the Holy Spirit on people who weren't ready to receive it. And so we, we believe this, that a lot of the things that happened in Jesus' life and in the disciples' lives from the resurrection to Pentecost were done intentionally to heal and restore the church so that they would be ready to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Now, depending on where you are in church world, when I say power of the Holy Spirit, you have a very different reaction, right? Some of y'all were raised Pentecostal. And so when I say power of the Holy Spirit, your reaction is like, yippee. And some of you were raised, I was raised Methodist. So when I hear power of the Holy Spirit, my first reaction is, oh, God. Here come the crazy people, right? And then my dad, took, he took me out of the Methodist church into a small Pentecostal church. And my fears were all true. <laughs> That's where they all went to church. All the crazy people went there. Um, we, we've, we've joked before about like, I, I was at, um, first assembly when we met in the theater. I mean, I've been there even beyond that, but in the theater right downtown, that's now condemned will never be used. But I remember the first note of Jewish songs when they would p- start playing the, f- I'm on the first note. We had a lady in church. That was her cue to get out in the aisle and start dancing, but she didn't just dance. She danced past the road that the teenagers were sitting on, and if you happened to be the unlucky teenager sitting on the end, she pulled you out. So in, in that church, no kidding, the minute the teenagers heard that first note of any kind of a Jewish song, you saw this huge squeeze into the middle, right? Like, Miss Ida not carrying me out into the aisle today. That's not going to happen. I watched that lady kick her shoe off in front of the church one time while she was dancing. So I don't know where you are on the whole scope of Pentecost, but we're going to do some foundational teaching. Can we do that? And then we're going to talk about Acts chapter 19. So we're going to be all over the place. If you're a note taker and you love scripture, this is your sermon. Okay, so first off, let's just start with what is Pentecost? right? Pentecostal churches did not invent Pentecost. Pentecost was a day on the Jewish calendar. It was a holiday. It was a festival, and it always happened 50 days after, the, after Passover. 
So 50 days, it, it marked the end of this. We'll do, a, we'll do a series sometime. I'll bring in smarter people. We'll talk about all the Jewish feasts and festivals. But Pentecost ended what was called the, the, the Festival of Weeks. I think that's right. And so it was like it marked the end of the harvest. And so they, they would start the Passover with a wave offering, and then they would end on Pentecost by saying, like, we've, we've received the harvest, it's all here, and that would mark the end of that. That's what Pentecost was for. Everybody would go to Jerusalem, so they would all gather there. That's where they would celebrate it. So it wasn't, an, it wasn't a holiday that started when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. It was already are you, that, I just feel like I totally destroyed that. But you get the idea that it was already on the calendar. And so it marked, historically, the end of the harvest. But on the day of Pentecost, what we read about in Acts chapter 2, God, God started something new, right? It didn't just mark the end of the season of the harvest. It actually marked the beginning of a new harvest. Amen. He sent the Holy Spirit so that we would be, Acts 1.8, witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So he started something new on a holiday that was old. Does that make sense? And now we're going to be um, in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 is where we'll spend most of our time today. Talking about what happened. I should have had this open before I even start talking. Acts chapter 19. Let's start at the, at the very beginning. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Now, this entire chapter of 19 is, happens in Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No. We've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. A couple things that I want to make sure you get foundationally before we even start talking about the rest of that chapter. A lot of discussion goes back and forth in, in church worlds and in, um, among like experts and theologians and commentators about what exactly does it mean? When do you receive the Holy Spirit? As a believer, when do you receive the Holy Spirit? When you're saved. So let me just give you some scriptures, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 clearly says that the Spirit enables us to say that Jesus is Lord. It's impossible to even say that he's Lord if you haven't had the Holy Spirit help you to say that. When I first met Wendy, Wendy was sweet. Well, she's still sweet. She's only gotten sweeter. That was a great recovery, y'all. That was the power of the Holy Spirit on display for y'all, right? <laughs> Holy Spirit was like, Urgh! Sweet Baptist girl when we met, I was a Pentecostal kid, and I didn't, she knew way more of the Bible than I did, and I, I think at one point I actually said to her, well, if you, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Let me just say this, that's so not true. 
And I knew it wasn't true because her eyes started to do this weird thing. <laughs> she wants to preach, yeah. And she took me, as any good Baptist girl would do, who's been discipled. And let me just say this, Pentecostals, discipleship's a good thing. She took me to this scripture, and she read that scripture to me. And she said, what about that? And I answered with all of my, I was just bold. I was like, (laughs) right? You hear somebody tell you that you're not saved if you don't have the Holy Spirit? If 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 you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're, I'm messing this up. If you hear somebody tell you that you have to be Pentecostal, speaking in tongues, all that stuff in order to be saved, you tell them that's not true, that I have the Holy Spirit. And so that little conversation marked me. And so even in our Assumes of God denomination, you'll hear this phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit. I believe that. I believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I just don't call it that. And it's because of that conversation that Wendy and I had. Now, this is being recorded, and it's possible that the district will come take my credentials, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I don't want them to do that, but let me explain why I don't use that phrase. Because when we think baptism in the Holy Spirit, it makes us think that somehow we haven't gotten all of the Holy Spirit. Like somehow there's more Holy Spirit for us to get. But listen, when you received Jesus, when you, and we'll see this in Scripture, when you confessed him as Lord, you received all of the Holy Spirit because you can't confess that Jesus is Lord if you don't have the Holy Spirit and so that one conversation that one verse Wendy's boldness to look at an idiot and say that's not true changed the entire way that I approached the Holy Spirit and teaching about the Holy Spirit and so even in youth group I would never say to teenagers hey if you want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit let's come to the front and pray here's what I would always tell them when you receive Jesus you received the Holy Spirit but now I'd like to pray for the Holy Spirit to receive you I'd like for you to say that I want to be consumed with the Holy Spirit that I don't want to have a fire shut up in my bones that I'm tired of holding in But I want you to actually say to God, I want you to have all of me now. Thank you that you gave me all of you, but I'd like to give you all of me. Take my hands and take my feet and take my tongue. Yeah, the tongue that says weird stuff sometimes, take that. Take my pride and kill all of it and get me. Consume me with the fire of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that that's what we see in Scripture. Now, listen. He said to these men, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, no, we we were only baptized in John's baptism. And I want you to, to jot this down. Repentance says, I'm sorry. Revival says, I'm yours. There's a lot of Christians that are sorry for a lot of things, but they've not yielded themselves to Jesus yet. What's also interesting is that when he prayed for these men in Ephesus, and this is at the very, very beginning, when he prayed for them, he prayed that they would know the Lord Jesus. Remember that? He said, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're not going to ever, we're not going to ever experience the fullness of the release of the Holy Spirit in our lives if we're not willing to say that he's Lord. I am admittedly a broken record. For the rest of my life, if you give me a microphone, I'm going to tell you that Jesus is Lord. And that until we bow our knee to his lordship, we are wasting our breath asking him to use us, bless us, whatever. 
Okay. I've, I just tried to filter that one out. Oh, okay. I do a lot of pre-marriage counseling, right? With people that want to have God bless their marriage, but they don't live a dating life that God can bless. So we come to church and we ask God, like, move in our service, God. Move in a way, just move in a powerful way. And he's like, well, I would move on Sunday if you would let me move in your life Monday through Saturday. Until we say he's Lord, until we yield to him, he's never going to move out of us, flow out of us the way that he wants. Right? He must be Lord. And so when we yield, that's when we receive the power of Pentecost. And by receive, I don't mean from heaven. They did in Acts chapter 2, right? We recognize that. The, the power came. There was like tongues of fire. It came from heaven into them. But now here we are. We're not waiting for. And I'm not saying we should ever sing songs like, you know, let the fire fall. And all. I mean, I know why we sing those songs. But I just want to be clear that we all know what we're saying. We're not asking for the Holy Spirit to come down for another Pentecost. We're asking the Holy Spirit to be released from within us. Honestly, guys, when I'm praying for our church, I don't pray for God to move like with another Pentecost in our church. I just pray, God, please move the church. Just move us. Like do something within us that makes us not be able to sit on our butts and receive. And I don't say that because I'm mad at you. I'm trying not to have that mad, intense face like I love you I love y'all I want to see us living out what God wants for us to do and he doesn't want us just to sit and critique he wants us to receive all he has for us and then be vessels to take it to people well that was a fun introduction wasn't it um okay so here's what we're gonna do let me give you a couple more scriptures just to jot these down okay just um because they're going to talk about praying in tongues. And I don't, again, I don't know where you are on all that. I don't want you to freak out. I just want to give you a couple of scriptures. You can study them later, okay? Just jot these down. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul wrote all of these. The Holy Spirit wrote all these through Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says that the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. Okay? Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. And in Romans chapter 8, 27 says that the Spirit of God prays the will of God. You'll hear me say this. If you come to the front and you receive prayer, from time to time, here's what I'll say to you. I would like to pray in my prayer language over you right now. And sometimes people are like, sweet. And sometimes people are like, wait, what? what? And I just explain it like this. Look, tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And according to the two verses that we just read, 1 Corinthians 2.11 and Romans 8.27, the Spirit of God knows the mind of God, and the Spirit of God prays the will of God. So if I'm praying for you in my prayer language, then what I know is I might not know your whole situation, but the Holy Spirit does, and he's praying through me the perfect will of God for you. And if you don't have that gift, you should walk into church and go, yeah, who's got that gift? Because I need you to put hands on me and pray right now. <laughs> I need the perfect will of God to be prayed over me right now. So is it weird? Sure it is. Is it scary? Not at all. I did it again. I'm just awful. Sorry. A couple more verses. 1 Corinthians 14, 14. These are the verses that Paul wrote 
the Holy Spirit wrote through Paul that I love because he's like me. Because sometimes um, when, you're, when you're praying in a prayer language, if maybe y'all aren't like me, but I'm praying in a prayer language, and I'm also saying to God, what's happening right now? Right? Like, what, what, is, what does it mean? And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, if I pray in tongues, my mind is unfruitful. I read that one time. I was like, wow. Even Paul that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament had no idea what was happening when he prayed in tongues. That sets me free, y'all. And then he said, I speak in tongues more than you all, 1 Corinthians 14, 18. So it wasn't like he said, hey, because we don't know exactly what's happening, we should stop doing it. He said, because I don't know what's happening, I'm saying we should all do it more. We should trust that. The Spirit of God knows the mind of God, prays the will of God. And even though my mind is unfruitful, I'm not quite sure what's happening, I wish all of us did it more. He said, I speak in tongues more than you all. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 5 said, I wish you all spoke in tongues. All of that to say, Holy Spirit's not going to grab your tongue and start wagging you around like a lasso and throw you against a locker somewhere. Right? We don't have to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit does desire to move through the body. Right? Now, Acts chapter 19. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to talk really fast, and you're going to take a lot of notes. And what I want you to talk, what what don't you see today is that there's a cost in Pentecost. There's a cost in Pentecost. And I'm going to show you a ton of the cost, and I want you to see the reward that the the church received because they paid the price. Now, I'm wearing my Risk It for the Biscuit t-shirt. Just as a visual reminder that we're talking about risk and reward. And if you risk it, there's a reward. Like this is if you risk it for the biscuit in Columbia, South Carolina. They should sponsor this message, Blue Flower Bakery. They got some great biscuits. They sell this T-shirt, and I love it. It just reminds me, like, we don't, we, there's a price to pay for what we want to receive. And we're going to see in Acts chapter 19 and a couple other places, I'll tell you where those are, that the church paid a price to have the power of Pentecost. And this does not play well in our society today because we really do not just want things handed to us, but we actually believe that things should be and will be handed to us. Early on in the days of the church, we would joke about how we felt like people at the church believed that there was like magic church fairy dust that got sprinkled in a room and suddenly a worship team appeared and a preacher had a message and the chairs were perfectly straight and the trash was thrown away it was like no like that happens to people (laughs) you just show up and it's been done but no that actually has to be done i think sometimes we read about pentecost we read about the church in acts and we say things like this i want this I read Acts, and I want, to, I want the church today to be like the church in Acts. Am I the only one? I mean, I desire to see the Holy Spirit move and change cities like he moved in Acts. But sometimes if I read it, I forget that they paid a price for that to happen. So here we go. There's a cost in Pentecost. Um, first, there's a personal cost. We've already read this, but Acts chapter 19, too. Acts chapter 19, the second verse, when Paul said, did you receive the Holy Spirit? They answered, no. 
there's a personal cost to Pentecost. We have to be willing to admit that we would that we need more. Right? And and we typically don't do that. Like we're typically content to just settle for whatever. Like I'll just I'll just take what I've got right now. That's good enough. My typical Christian experience going to church, sitting through that sermon from Paul that are they're getting longer and longer, but I'm still doing it. Sit through that, and I'm content with that. And there's a personal cost to Pentecost. You have to get to the place where you say, I'm not, that's not enough for me. I, I want more. I've heard that there's more. They were like, I don't even know that there is more. And he's like, there is. And they had to say, we haven't heard of that, but yes, we want that. There's a personal cost in Pentecost. Now, you can flip back to it if you want to, but in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, they all started speaking in tongues, right? The Bible says that there were men, and there were men gathered in that city from all over, all kinds of nations. They had their own languages, and that they all heard the gospel proclaimed in their language. Now, when we were in New York a couple weeks ago, God just started showing me, like, the miracle that that would have been, Right? I, t- I told you, we were never anywhere, and we never, we rarely ever heard English. If you're standing in line, you just heard so many different dialects, like people just having conversation. Like, there are so many languages, and so on the way back, you know, Wendy was like, I wonder how many, how many languages are in New York, and there's 600 languages in the metropolitan area of New York City. 600. I know two, English and Southern. That's all I got, right? <laughs> 600 languages. And God took me back to Acts chapter 2, and he was like, Paul, if, if, if the day of Pentecost played out today in New York City like it played out in Acts chapter 2, instantly the church would begin speaking, and 600 languages would hear the gospel. That's miraculous, y'all. And you would think that when something like that happens, everybody would say, the church is amazing. We should all go to church. But that's not what happened. Instead, it says that they made fun of them and said that they were drunk. And so there's a reputational cost. I looked it up. It's a word, reputational. There's a reputational cost to Pentecost. But here's the reward. If we're willing to lay our reputation down for the sake of the power of Pentecost, the reward is that 3,000 people came to the church that day were added to the church because peter you remember peter the guy that denied jesus three times he got up and preached about jesus on the day of pentecost and he didn't just preach like a a make you feel good sermon he said this to all those people that thought he was crazy and drunk he said well listen um jesus was sent from the father you remember jesus y'all the guy that you killed (laughs) remember that like that's what it says he called them out He's looking at a mob that could turn on him just like that. And he said, that the Jesus, you killed. That's bold. That's power. That's the change. And so because he was willing to pay that reputational cost, I, I told God in India one day, I'd rather have impartation than reputation. I want you to move in power in my life. And if it costs me my reputation, then that's what it will have to be. And I just want you to know this. All eyes looking at me real quick. I'm not preaching this free of cost. 
Like the things that God's doing right now in our church, the things that are happening in our lives, what I'm preaching right now, they're costing us things. They're, they're costing us reputation. There's a personal cost to the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we're willing to pay it, the reward is preaching with power. There's a structural cost. This is in Acts chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. But it says in Acts chapter 6 that because the numbers of the church were increasing, guess what happened? There was a fence. Some people weren't getting the food fast enough, if any at all. And so there was a dispute, it says, that, was, that rose in the church. And so there's a structural cost to Pentecost. Like there's a willingness on the church's behalf to say, hey, let more people in, and we recognize it's going to put a lot of stress on us, and we're going to need to have team leaders stand in front of you so that you know who to talk to about how you can serve because there's a structural cost to Pentecost. What would happen if 3,000 people joined our church next Sunday? For one, I'd be wetting my pants. Right? Like, like what? what's happening right now? That's a lot. Can you imagine that? What if the church, what if we just doubled? I mean, I like having one service. I'm not advocating that we have two, three, or four, but we can't even have that now because we don't have people serving to even make that possible. But what if God moved in our city in such a way that people were like, we need to get in. We need to see what's happening. We need to see what's going on in your church. There's a structural cost. There's got to be the, the willingness to say, look, we'll serve the tables. Are you willing to pay that? And the reward for paying the structural cost, I love this, was continued growth and no offense. Y'all good? Personal cost, reputational cost, structural cost. There's a relational cost. Back in Acts chapter 19. We'll be in Acts chapter 19 the rest of the time. Acts chapter 19. Um, after the, the 12 received the Holy Spirit, it says that Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. This is not a trick question. Where was he? The synagogue. Was he talking to what we would consider insiders or outsiders? Insiders. He's preaching boldly and persuasively to insiders about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe. And they publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. There's a relational cost to Pentecost. Paul's talking to his people. That's his tribe. He's a Jew talking to Jews. He was a Pharisee. Now he's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to people that knew him. And he's telling them, like, look, something's different right now. Something's changing right now in the church. There's a power in the Holy Spirit that we didn't have before, but we have it now. And he's boldly preaching. That comes from the Holy Spirit. And, and because he's preaching about the kingdom of God, they rejected him. I don't know how you do with rejection. I don't do well. I want to call everybody up. 
Like, can we have one more conversation? Can we have one more conversation? Can I have one more conversation? And at some point, it's not because you have a heart for them. It's because your heart's broken. You just got to fix that. Rejection is hard. And you'll be rejected by the people that you're closest to because the power of the Holy Spirit is going to become an obstacle. I've told you so many times, the world will not stop revival. The church will. Because the church is going to look at you and say, stop being so radical. You've already got Jesus. You've already got the Holy Spirit. That's why I told you the very first cost is personal. I need, we need people that step up and say, you know what? If there is more, I'd like to experience it. And if he needs more of me, he can have all of me. I just want him to move through me with more power. So, God, whatever's in me, get it out of the way. I want more of you to come through. And I'm telling you, if you pray that prayer, two things are going to happen. God's going to answer it, and people are going to try to squelch it every time. Oh, brother, you don't have to do that. I know. I get to. There's a, there's a relational cost. Now, now, here's the reward, and, and this is interesting. It says that he left, the, he left them, he took the disciples with them, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. He lost three months with people that were his tribe, but he gained two years preaching the gospel. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in that province heard the word of the Lord. That's the reward. Yeah, he got rejected, but because he didn't let that hold him back and he went forward and preached the gospel, one, he preached boldly, and two, everybody heard it. We can mourn losses, and that's a good thing, but at some point, we have to move forward, right? Because there's, there's a city, there are people that are waiting to hear. And then it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. <laughs> I should make that my life prayer, right? So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Now, I'm not going to hang out here long. Let me just make a couple statements. Number one, I don't read this in here, so I don't. Maybe it happened, but I think if it was important, God would have put it in there. I don't read that Paul charged people money to get the handkerchief to send to the sick people. So, I'm not saying that God can't do this, but I am telling you if a man or a woman charges you for it, I'd go somewhere else. So, we're not going to be selling handkerchiefs. Also, this thing's nasty. <laughs> And I'm wiping sweat with this. But let's just go maybe a little bit deeper. I was asking God, so, I mean, what does that mean? We're not going to have, like, a handkerchief and apron ministry. I love how Kelly walked in with her apron, right? I mean, y'all should have clapped longer for Kelly. Food, y'all, food, right? But, like, According to that scripture, if Paul was on a hospitality team and he just like, he laid his apron down, like somebody could have walked past that apron that was sick and could have been healed. And I think sometimes things like this happen, they just displayed the beautiful power of the Holy Spirit. And then somebody would have seen that and went, oh, we should start an apron ministry. 
No, maybe we should be so full of the Holy Spirit that wherever we walk, things change, right? That's the point. And so what I, I was asking God, like, what, what do we take away from this? And so we're talking about relational cost, right? And this is what I feel like God told me. Power moved through Paul because the rejection of those he was close to led to the release of power to those he wasn't. I think we get so offended by the rejection that we stop the flow of God. But when we step into what he's doing, the new thing he's doing, he just releases power through. I believe this, that he can, he can, there might be three people watching right now. I don't even know. He can save somebody through that camera who hears these words on YouTube. He could do that. He, he, we don't have to try to force it. He can just use what we're doing to save souls. And he's doing extraordinary things. We don't want to limit what that looks like. I'm telling you, I could. COVID was brutal, y'all, for all of us. I could sit in a corner and rock back and forth for the rest of my life over the last two years. And some days I'd like to. They're called Monday. But y'all, there's something greater ahead of us. The church's best days are literally ahead of us. Also the hardest, but the best. Because the darker culture gets, the brighter our light's going to shine. But there's a cost. And a lot of that cost is relational. I'm telling you, the people that you came to this point with might not be the people that you go past this point with. And that's not because those people are bad. It's because there's always a relational cost in Pentecost. Somebody's going to think you're a little too weird, a little too crazy, a little too sold out, a little too whatever. And at some point, you just have to say, bless your brother, bless your sister, I love you. You might even be right, but I'm going to risk it for the biscuit, right? I'm going for Jesus. Here's the next cost. There's a commitment cost. Are y'all, are y'all okay? I know I'm asking that a lot. I'm just, I think I need to make sure that you're okay. You're not going to turn into a mob? Okay, good. I see red blood. That's what I'm saying. It's making me nervous. There's a, because it's just going to get a little harder. There's a commitment cost. I wish I had time to do all these stories because they're so good. Just promise me you'll hang out in Acts chapter 19 all week long. Right? And, and just so you know, going forward, we're about halfway through our series. So for the rest of June, we're going to talk about some of these costs in a little bit more detail. I'm just trying to, to highlight them right now. There's a commitment cost. Acts chapter 19, verse 15. So um, miracles are happening, handkerchiefs, aprons, all that stuff. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, which sounds like a band, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So seven sons of Sceva, they were the sons of a priest. By the way, teenagers in the house. It's got to be your faith. Right? You can't live off your parents' faith. It's hard for parents, but you can't. You can't. It's got to become your faith. 
Seven sons of Sceva were going around saying what they'd heard their dad say. And one day, the evil spirit answered them. We could camp out there for a while, couldn't we? So they're saying the thing, and one day, the person they're talking to, their head spun around. And this is what they said. Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Yeah, big puddle right here. Yes? <laughs> In the Greek, this is what it means. Jesus I agape, Paul I phileo. Who are you? Jesus, I know. Now, now, again, can we just, theology is important and doctrine is important, but can I have the freedom just to talk? Because we are in community and we'll figure this stuff out. But I'm just telling you the way this hits me. I don't know how demons can know Jesus intimately, but that's the word that's used here. Jesus, we really know. Paul, we know about. We ain't even never heard of you. And I was, when I was studying, I felt like God said there's a commitment cost because we can't come casual to the fight. We have to spend the time getting to know Jesus and having him know us. John 15 talks about abiding. That's a time thing. I need to spend time with you. Listen. When Wendy and I first got married, I know I talk about our marriage all the time. It's not perfect, but it is so good, right? Because she's in it. I'm, I ruin it, and she fixes it. When we first got married, we were probably married like the first two or three years of our marriage, and we would see people, and they'd be like, oh, y'all look so happy. Are y'all newlyweds? And we're like, I don't know how long that lasts, but I guess so. It's like two years. And she, they would always say this, oh, it'll end. And I, I would, you know, I'm a little bold. I would look at people and say, I'm so sorry your marriage is miserable. <laughs> but ours is great. It costs something to know somebody. I don't want to be casual about this relationship. And I could be. Like, we could sit back and just watch Everybody Loves Raymond, which we do sometimes, and laugh and never even talk to each other. But like, I, want to, I still want to know Wendy, and she still wants to know me. And it costs something for that to happen. There's a commitment cost, a time cost. I'm, again, this isn't about works, so don't hear it that way. But I'm telling you, when you have met Jesus, it changes how you live. Because you love him. More about that in a minute. But when we love him like that, it compels us. It changes how we live. And if we don't love him, then everything that people do who are madly in love with Jesus, we call legalistic. I don't have to pray at church on Wednesday night from 7 o'clock to whenever it's over. And my answer is, you're right. You don't. And I don't have to wash dishes. Every night that Wendy cooks. But our marriage is a whole lot better because I do. And I want to. Which is why we have a rule in our house. If you cook, you don't clean. Some of y'all should try that. Wow. Well. There's a preaching cost, a Pentecost as well. There's a commitment cost. But listen, check this out. Here's the reward. If... 
we're willing to pay the price to build the relationship between us and Jesus. If we're willing to build that, it says this. Well, first it says, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, I don't know about you. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. If you've never read the Bible because you think it's boring, that one verse should make you dive in. Right? Naked and bleeding. Wow, what's that about? When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. That means all, like, oh, snap. Do I know Jesus? I think I'm better, I better get to know Jesus because I don't want to run away naked and bleeding. They were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Mm. There's a commitment cost, and when we pay the cost... The result is, the reward is that his name is held in high honor. I want my life to, to just point to him, right? Like his, he has transformed who I am. And that's why we do what we do. And I want people to hold him in high honor. Okay, three more. We'll go quick. There's a confessional cost. Everybody take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Just hang with me. The next verse. Many of those who believed, again, seven sons of Sceva went away naked and bleeding. This is all the result of the power of the Holy Spirit being released in the city of Ephesus. Are you still with me? All in one city. Many of those who believed now came. Who was it? Believers. Church people. Look at the person next to you. Tell them this is about them. <laughs> y'all are scared. I can tell. It's all right. It's about y'all. I don't mind saying it. This is about you. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. There's a confessional cost. Believers came and started confessing secret sins. Every revival is marked by confession. Repentance. Everyone. You don't have revival without repentance. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. We'll dive into this later. Because we have to talk about magic and witchcraft. And so much more stuff. But can you just make a note for today? That the reward of confessional cost was a purified church. Like God purified the church. Now, this was no small bonfire. Anybody um, be proud. I mean, I'm not sure it was our best move as youth pastors. But anybody ever burned tapes or CDs or records, ever part of a burning? I, I did those things. Like I would, like, y'all bring your CDs and we'll just smash them and all that kind of stuff. And I used to, I, th I think I've. I've thrown away so many probably good bands, right? Like, you just, like, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but the difference here is that nobody was asking them to bring them. They just brought it. Again, I could tell you stories about revival where preachers didn't ask people to confess sin and, and give up the stuff that they're using, but preachers would be finished with a service and walk off and look back at the altar and see that there was stuff on it. People were just like, yeah. I guess I don't really need that anymore. Throw it on the altar. 
Are you seeing how this is all body-led? Not a person saying, you better. And this was huge, y'all. They were, what they burned, the Bible says it was worth 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was a day's wage. That's 50,000 days of pay. And in today's economy, that's just under $11 million. That's a big bonfire. So not only is there a confessional cost, but there's a financial cost. They burned a mil, $11 million worth of stuff. But the reward is verse 20. The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Because, because when the church confesses sin and gives away literally stuff in their life that's worth money but not worth as much as Jesus, guess who notices? Them. The people in the city, they're like, wait, what? I, can you, you did what? Why would you do that? Just tell somebody you canceled Netflix. <laughs> Just start there. I mean, if you did cancel Netflix. Just, we, we canceled Netflix. And they'll say this, why? Well... I'm not sure it's Netflix and I think it's Netflix and hell. We, we just, like, we literally said, like, we canceled it because we would try to watch a movie and we just couldn't even get through the first five minutes. It's just like the wild, wild west of movies. Anything goes. It's just amazing. And it's not like to make anybody feel bad for watching Netflix. It's just to recognize that, like, our appetites are changing. And what would happen if, like, that started happening all over the place? People would take notice. There's a financial cost. And then finally, and this is a big one. We'll spend a lot of time on this in the next couple of months. There's a cultural cost. So I want to make sure that you get this. And I'm probably going to use examples. I'm not preaching at you. Okay? I'm just trying to use examples we can relate to. There's a cultural cost. Um, the last half of Acts chapter 19 talks about a riot in the city. And the reason why the riot happened is because, I know this is taking forever, but hang with me. The reason why the riot happened is because in that city, Artemis was a goddess. And so they made idols to the goddess Artemis. And suddenly the idol makers realized, oh snap, if the church keeps going the way it's going, people aren't going to buy our idols. And so they had a huge meeting and tried to get all the, all the people riled up and mad at Paul and the church because they were literally going to kill the idol-making business. There's a, there's a cultural cost to Pentecost. We read about revivals and we read great stories like, yeah, this strip club next to the church shut down. And we go, that's great. And, and it is. There are also people that made money there, and now they don't. And if they don't give their hearts to Jesus, they're not too excited about the church. So here's the example, and it's a terrible example. I know that. Again, I'm not, just don't read into it any more than I mean it, like just as an example. I love our city, and our city has been lost since the 
textile industry went away. Our, our city does not have an identity. Albemarle does not, does not know who she is. And so Albemarle is going to try to be Charlotte as much as Albemarle can be Charlotte and, you know, whatever. And we're going to try to bring in businesses that are just like Charlotte. And so, again, I'm going to use an example. I'm not throwing stones or I'm not calling you out. I'm just using an example. At some point, our city will 100% embrace alcohol all the time in every event, all the time. And can you imagine what would happen in our city if we suddenly downtown had pubs and clubs and breweries, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily, I'm just using that as an example. If we had all of that, and the church was all about that as well, and then one day revival broke out, and the church realized, we don't need that. And an entire city's industry was based on that one, their whole economy was based on that one industry. What would happen in this city? I'm just bracing you It'll be chaos because people like their stuff, and we like our idols. We don't worship little gods called Artemis. We worship bigger gods, right? We, we talked about this. John and I talked about this this week. Like in New York City, it's the financial capital of the world, right? So, like, what if suddenly the stock market was seen by Christians as a horrible thing, and they were like, yeah, we're not going to invest in that. I'm not telling you not to invest in it. I'm just, it's an example. The stock market could collapse, and it would cause chaos. We think of revival as this great thing, like we just preach the gospel. People come bow their knee to Jesus, and everything's great. But the reality is there's a cultural cost to Pentecost. And when we rise up in power of the Holy Spirit, I'm not talking about power like give me your seat, Mayor. I'm talking about power from the Holy Spirit. When we rise up in power, it has an effect on the place where we live. And we need to be ready for that. We need to be ready for that. We need to be prepared to handle that. And if it's all we can do to even bow our head and pray in a restaurant over our own meal, we're not going to handle that. We have to live in the power of the Holy Spirit because there will be a shift in the city where we live. And I just put down like, there'll be mob mentality and revival can hurt business. And we as believers should be ready for that. And guess what we could do? Actually help the people who got hurt by, in their business. Right? I knew it would be quiet. It's okay. So let's finish with this. We've talked about a lot of cost. There's a cost in Pentecost. Do y'all get that? There's a cost in Pentecost. So here's the question. Is Jesus worth the cost? Well, okay, hold on. <laughs> it wasn't a trick question, but let me just drop this on you. The church that we've been reading about is the church in Ephesus. Right? All of Acts 19 happened in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, the Holy Spirit writes seven letters to the seven churches. And guess which is the first church to get a letter? Ephesus. And guess what the Holy Spirit said to them? You guys are killing it. You're killing it. Like you're doing such good things. I only have one thing against you. You lost your first love. Which tells me this. 
There was a time in the history of the church of Ephesus when they had their first love. Yes? When all the things that they were giving up, all the things that they were paying, the cost that it was, everything it was costing them, they were like, we'll pay the price because Jesus is worth it. But at some point, they lost the first love, and they just kept doing stuff. And that'll just burn you out. What is the power of Pentecost? It's not power to have a great service, swing from chandeliers, really great music. It's power to live the gospel in front of people who need to see it. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power of Pentecost, that we would be witnesses out there. And this morning, that's what I want to pray. I want to call you back to your first love. I want to call you back to, why did I even start this in the first place? It's because of Jesus. It's not because you're the only person that can do an Excel spreadsheet for the church. Although in this church, you may be. (laughs) It's not because we can't find, I mean, like, all the things we do are important, but nothing is as important as Jesus. Let me tell you a dream I have, and then I'll pray. One of the dreams that I have is that we would have a service someday where we would start singing songs, and the words would never change. And then y'all would be like, what's wrong with Russ? Why isn't he changing? Where the volume never changes. I mean, what's wrong with the, what's wrong with the sound guys? What's their problem? I just pray we have a service where they're just on their face. And not them because they're bad, but where we just like literally are just enthralled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus. And we're not like that doesn't matter anymore. And we don't need that stuff. It's nice, but I want the Holy Spirit in this place so strongly that we just might lay on our face. We'll never get the world to come to that. Really? Because Acts chapter 19 says an entire city was shaken. Seems like they might, they might not like it, but they might come. I think when we have the release of the Holy Spirit from our lives, it's amazing what will happen in our city. That was the longest sermon I've ever preached. Pat the person on the back next to you. Tell them good job. And now we're going to pray. Can we just give a, like, really simple altar call and just say, if you want the Holy Spirit just to consume your life, would you just stand up and just come stand here? And we're just going to pray over you.